Hey everyone, before this podcast begins, we want to tell you about some other arts-related podcasts you're going to love. They are The Conduit Music Podcast, Artsville, Gringo and the Man, Art World Horror Stories, and Not Real Art. On these action-packed podcasts, you'll hear experts talk about creativity, design, the music biz, the art world, visual art, American craft, Chicano art, street art, graffiti, and even stand-up comedy. So be sure to find and follow these great arts podcasts today. Now, back to your regularly scheduled programming. Warning, the Not Real Art Podcast is intended for creative audiences only. The Not Real Art Podcast celebrates creativity and creative culture worldwide. It contains material that is fresh, fun and inspiring and is not suitable for boring old art snobs. Now, let's get started and enjoy the show. Greetings and salutations, my creative brothers and sisters. Welcome to the Not Real Art Podcast, where we celebrate creative culture and the artists who make it. I'm your host, Erin Yoshi, and today we have Michelle Wu. Michelle is a creative producer and artist based in Los Angeles. She is the co-founder of Four Freedoms, an artist-led civic engagement organization, for which she received a 2017 ICP Infinity Award. Her diverse role includes cultural strategy, curation, and project management of national campaigns, public art, programming, and cross-industry partnerships. So without further ado, let's get into the episode. Hello, welcome. Today we have Michelle Wu of Four Freedoms. We are so excited to welcome you here on the Not Real Art Podcast. Thank you, Michelle, for being with us today. Hello, how are you doing? I'm good. Thanks, Yoshi. It's so great to be in conversation with you. I always love talking to you. So appreciate the invite. Uh, Me too. Me too. I think it's just really special. You know, we've built this friendship over, you know, just so recently, we've really become very tight. And I I just am so thankful for all that you've shared with me. And so that's why I'm so excited to welcome you onto the podcast, because you're just like a wealth of knowledge, I think, in the art world. And I really love the role that you kind of play and this niche that you've carved out for yourself and with Four Freedoms. So we're going to dive into some of your you know, your history along the way. I want you to share your gems with us. I'll try and pull out as many as I can, but feel free to drop them along the way. And just to kind of start off, could you tell me about some of your very early art making memories? Did you used to make art or what did you make like as your maybe an oldest memory of making something creative? Hmm. I was a really bad piano player when I was Hmm. four, going on five. My mother always used to yell at me because I, I never wanted to practice the songs that they made us play, which were, you know, kind of like bullshit nursery rhyme songs. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, was I was always like... <laughs> trying to freestyle and she was like, this sounds crazy. <laughs> and then I did some painting in like middle school and high school. Not very good. But I was really into 
actually like second generation abstract expressionism. And I had an art teacher who was a part of, I guess, kind of like the second or third wave of like Bay Area abstract painters. Her name is Karen Casaglad. So she really got me into, I think, what we typically think of as fine art. And I really started making much more regularly and I think diligently, probably around 15, 16 years old. So, and it's funny because my mom has some of these really, really early, really bad paintings of mine on the walls of her house. Oh, that's amazing that she saved them. <laughs> yeah. That is so cool. I, I totally wish that I had some of my early childhood stuff. I have one sculpture that my mom saved and every time she moved, she moved with it. And like my daughter recently, when you know, she like put it in her mouth and I think the dog has eaten it at some point. So there's like teeth marks in it. It's a little dog. So it's like teeth marks in it. My daughter has like totally played with it and almost broken it, <laughs> but it's still there. Still almost intact. <laughs> That's amazing. No, it's awesome. <laughs> um, so did you study art? How did you start to get into like the art field where you were like found interest in it? Did you study it? Yeah. So I, um, did pretty well academically in school. And as a result, I, I got to participate in this program called, I think it was called Running Start. I could be wrong. But it allowed me to take college level courses when I was in high school at the local community college. And I didn't have to take math beyond 10th grade because I had placed so high math level wise or whatever. I mean, I can't do math to save my life now, but back in the day. So I actually right. used that opportunity to take college level art courses. So I was wow. taking figure drawing and ceramics. And I think I even took a painting class at a Seattle Central Community College. And so making art in high school with my teacher, Karen, and then doing all of these courses as part of Running Start, I think is really what fueled me. And then I actually was planning to go to Western, which is in Bellingham. It's an art school in Bellingham, Washington. But then I got into Pratt. And I was oh. like, oh, Bellingham or Brooklyn. So I yeah. took Brooklyn. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, hmm, this is going to be a hard one. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So I think it was just, it was, you know, again, partly her influence. I think just being around older students and making art in, in really, I guess, traditional forums, but in very non-traditional ways. And I don't know, it just got me really excited. I, I thought I was pretty bored with school and was just so ready to move on. And I don't know, just given the space to be creative and to think imaginatively just felt, I don't know, it just felt so right. And I think I just, I followed that despite my parents' protests. Disapproval. Oh, I <laughs> yes. know all about that. You know, all the like, <laughs> that's not a real job. There's no potential out there for you. You're going to starve. Do you want to starve? I, I heard all of those types of things. I think especially, totally. you know, like having Asian parents or immigrant parents, it's like you don't get the option to choose a dream job. You have to choose something safe because it's like – People came here for a reason. Our families came here for a reason. And so, yeah, I think that a lot of times that there's so much pressure that like you better go into business, be a lawyer or a doctor. Like that's the choice. And this art thing, you need to get out of your head. You know, it could be a hobby, but not a real thing. 
do your parents now, like, I'm sure that they support you, you know, you're doing well, but was there a point where that shifted where they were like, oh, okay, you, you can do something here. Maybe very, very recently, which is, (laughs) I mean, it's been, you know, (laughs) so long. I mean, I think about when I first started painting, I mean, that was two over 20 years ago. So yeah, I mean, I think it took them a while to come around. I think it, again, it was mostly from a place of just love and good intentions, but I think a fear around how I would be able to kind of stand on my own and perhaps one day take care of them and myself. And they are definitely from a very pragmatic family and generation. And they watched me really struggle for a long time, you know, when I was in grad school and working multiple jobs, some of which were unpaid. I even had to cocktail waitress like on the weekends, Oh yeah, which is something we didn't really talk about when I was kind of at my professional corporate art job, but it was something I had to do in order to survive some of those early years. So I think that they were always very fearful. And I think, yeah, just most recently are getting comfortable with the idea, like, this is it. Like, Yeah, that there's something here. I think she's actually made this work. I definitely remember, like, when my parents came to my first art show, or, like, one of my art shows or an art event, and I want to say it was, like, when I was in my 30s. You know, I had already been doing art for, I don't know, like, since I was a kid, but really where I knew that I wanted to do it for over a decade. So, you know, for them to come to this show, I was like, wow, they actually are showing support, you know, like this is, this is a major twist, but yeah, that I can totally feel you on that one. Going back to some of your early jobs in art, what was your first job in art? Ooh, I'm trying to think the very first one. I think that I, I was a development intern at the Dumbo Art Center. Mm. So I wrote grants and I worked very closely with the executive director. I'm blanking on her name right now. But it would be me, her in the office, writing a lot. And I would often help with gallery installations and other kind of random things. And so started kind of a, getting acquainted with how to run an arts institution, an arts organization, and all the various parts that went into it. And obviously, these are things that they didn't teach us in art school. We would take six-hour color theory classes, but how to write a grant, not on the agenda. (laughs) So it was interesting. It was almost kind of like the beginning of almost like a self-taught MBA in many ways. And that would continue on for the next, you know, 15 years up until now. And I'm still, you know, discovering new things all the time about, you know, how to run a business and how to do that creatively in a way that really supports our intentions and our interests as creatives. So. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, some of the, when you're learning this background stuff, this, you know, which I think is so instrumental to having a career in art, you have to be an entrepreneur, you have to be able to do so many of these other things to find sustainability, you know, and so I'm sure some of your early events, because I've seen on the outside, your recent events, and they're massive, and they're amazing. So what about some of your early events? What were they like? Hmm. They were really DIY. Mm -hmm. I mean, 
we didn't know what we were doing and it was kind of okay because mm -hmm. it sort of felt like we were there to break the rules anyway. Mm -hmm. You know, as artists, we're supposed to come in and disrupt and sort of inject the environment and the space with creativity and radical ideas, you know? So I think the bar was set quite low in terms of organization and efficiency and business acumen. <laughs> but it's interesting because as my career has evolved and progressed over the years, you realize that all of those things, right? Like grant writing, managing budgets, reading contracts. I mean, all of that is a part of the creative process as well. And without, without those things and without learning how to do those things, I wonder if I would have been able to, I don't know, move as creatively and chameleon-like as we have been. Right. Yeah. So once you kind of know what the rules are, right, and you have that baseline knowledge, it's much easier to break them and bend them to your will, so to speak. So Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's super powerful because I kind of went the opposite way. I have a business degree and I didn't study art, but, you know, <laughs> right. like, I, like I totally took like economics classes and accounting and business administration and all this stuff. And so like I learned it in school and then I got out and was like, I'm done. Now I don't have like my parents can't say anything. Now I can just go and be an artist. And then now as an artist, I'm like, oh my God, I actually use that stuff way more or all the time, you know, just as much as I do my creativity. And it is its own form of creativity because it allows me to kind of like build partnerships or build projects that you can go into it with a different, more creative lens. Yeah, absolutely. Artists are small business owners. You know, we really are entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. but we aren't we aren't really trained to really have agency in those areas. You know, we're mm -hmm. we're taught to hone our craft and it's almost this very antiquated approach to what it means to be an artist. And I think yeah, to your point and and to my earlier point like it it really does allow you such flexibility and room to move and to be able to kind of speak multiple languages as you traverse different creative environments and spaces. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really great way to frame it. Because when you think about the idea that to be a successful artist, you just have to be good at making art. That's no longer the case. You know, like there's so many people that are so good at making art. And that's amazing. And you have to do that. But on top of that, you have to be able to read contracts, you have to know how to balance your budgets, you have to be able to make these partnerships and, you know, all the other sides of it that are just as important. And if not, a lot of times I see people that are stronger in that area flourish more so than people that are just good at making art. So it's like mind blowing that institutions haven't caught up. I mean, some are starting to, some are starting to give like some business courses, but it's still very small in comparison. Yeah, I'm definitely starting to see this shift from kind of an object focused sort of idea or vision for what an artist is towards something much more expansive, right? Like artists right. are amazing thinkers. They're not afraid to take risks. Mm -hmm. um, they're not afraid to fail. Or even if they are afraid to fail, it's almost like we're, we're sort of built to fail. Um, <laughs> and to move through these spaces and experiment in ways that we're not really allowed to in more 
kind of traditional, quote unquote, real world settings. And I think that's that's what can be both frustrating but nourishing about being an artist because we're able to build and create all these connections that didn't previously exist. But sometimes it takes a little bit for the world to catch up with us. So we're talking and we're making and people aren't yet connecting the dots that we're connecting. So yeah, it's it's also kind of figuring out how to bring people with you as well. Mm -hmm. That makes, I think, creating art such a very special and unique space to be in. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, tell me about like, how did you end up getting involved with Four Freedoms? How did you first of all, how did you meet your team? (laughs) Well, I have been working with Hank Willis Thomas, one of my close collaborators and friends for a couple years at that point. I was running his studio and producing a number of his projects and sort of helping him to expand his practice as a business and, you know, really kind of systematize things and build an infrastructure around him so that he could sort of focus on the creative. So I had come from the gallery world and had been feeling pretty disheartened and realized I really wanted to work with artists. So he was one of the first artists that I had started working with after quite a long time. And our partnership sort of flourished into a friendship. And he had also been working closely with our collaborator, Eric Gottesman. I mean, they've been friends for over 20 years. So they were having side conversations about the political moment. He and I were having conversations and it all just sort of coalesced. I think I want to say like in the fall of 2015 and yeah, Hank had the idea of creating a super PAC and we were like, what? We don't even know what a super PAC, right? Is so it was the whole thing from kind of creating the actual legal entity. And we were like a functioning 527 we raised money. We didn't specifically, we didn't do express advocacy as is generally intended when creating a super PAC. But like a lot of our work, you know, it was about kind of hacking a political model, getting to know it from the inside out so that we could be better equipped to, I think, critique it and imagine something perhaps bigger, more equitable, more supportive of artists and the kinds of messaging that we wanted to see out in the world. And we could feel the tension building ahead of 2016. And we could see that the discourse around society and politics was becoming not only increasingly divisive, but I think increasingly simplistic. And it was really both disturbing, but also, you know, scary for us. And Something that artists do, I think, inherently is inject nuance and critical thinking into the conversations that we're having about life, about politics, about the future. And so we thought, you know, what would it look like if we co-opted these spaces that are generally used for advertising products or advertising political messaging, activated it with art, questions, things that might inspire people to look more deeply at the positions that they're taking around issues and inspire more, I think, open, honest, and compassionate conversation. Because conversations today, and even back then, felt just like mm-hmm. shouting matches. So right. that was really its kind of beginnings in it. And it was really supposed to be a project that took place in 2016. 
to galvanize artists and the creative community to vote and to think about what their role in society was ahead of this really historic election. And it wasn't even supposed to exist beyond that. And then it, it sort of just took off organically from there. Wow. I didn't know that. I didn't know that it was just originally made just for the elections to kind of galvanize that moment. And then now it has like its legs of its own and it's just like your baby is born and it's out in the world (laughs) flourishing. (laughs) Well, sometimes we still even refer to it as a project, even though we're like a full-fledged business organization now. Yeah, we almost sort of forget and we kind of revert back to this language that we had used in 2016 because all of it to us was making art, creating the entity, creating the business creating the the infrastructure to do these projects, to build these partnerships, to really cultivate this community. All of that to us is is a part of the art. Yeah, absolutely. So walk us through some of the projects that you guys do. Yeah. So, whew, I mean, so many. such a wide range of projects these days. But I mean, I think baseline, I mean, we're really creating art to inspire greater civic participation. And also to think more expansively around what civic participation looks like. And so for us, that looks like art exhibitions. It looks like public art, right, in the form of national billboard campaigns, in the form of very localized art activations. It can look like public programming in partnership with institutions, organizations, local organizers and artists. You and I are in conversations with the city right now, so it can can really sort of span the breadth of anyone that's really interested in uplifting the voices of artists. We've also done e-commerce partnerships. We've created art and sold it. We've participated in art fairs. So just I think for the past few years, we've really been in, in exploration mode. Hank, Eric, and I come from the art world. We understand these models. And so it was almost kind of like revisiting them, but from a very different perspective to see where do we fit and how can we use this as a platform to talk about the things that are important to us. So, yeah, I mean, at the moment, we are building a campaign around the theme of justice, and that'll comprise a number of individual campaigns, including our AAPI Solidarity Campaign, which launched technically at the end of April, but throughout this month of May, which is also AAPI Heritage Month, for those who don't know. We're also building a partnership with the Land Back Initiative and an incredible coalition of amazing Indigenous artists. We're also collaborating with AI for the People, on New York City-wide campaign. Speaking of New York City, we have kind of an ongoing partnership with Times Square Arts and our friend, the amazing Jean Cooney, who runs who runs that program. So it really just does span the range of all the things that we've done. And I think over the years, people have really encouraged us to like, focus, 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 focus. But we're like, no, we're, we're artists. We want to keep reinventing the wheel. We want to do this. We want to do that. And so... <laughs> trying to think about how to build these maybe broader containers and a broader story around all of these seemingly disparate things that for us are very connected. So we're still in that kind of processing mode of, you know, how do we do that? How do we tell the story of what we do and how do we 
talk about the evolution of the work from 2015 until now, it's not totally coherent or, or linear. You know, right. and we often go back to things that we've done in the past to reinvestigate them and to try and do them more expansively, to do them better. So, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I love that idea of having like a justice program because everything, you know, like so much of what you do want to do can fall under that bucket. So I feel like by, like you're saying, making it more expansive, it's like we're stretching the limitations that are structures that are kind of created around focusing, like it's better to focus because then people know exactly what you do or people know how to find you or whatever, you know, the reasons are to be, to specialize and everything. But sometimes it's really powerful because we all are engaged in so many different things that are calling to us and that we feel are important or that are timely that we want to put our efforts into. And so by being expansive, it does allow you to kind of step in in so many different ways and show up for so many different things. So I actually really love that you guys do that. I think it's really powerful. Oh, thank you. And you know how making art is. It's like you think you're headed in one direction and then, you know, you learn 50 things along the way and you're like, oh, crap, actually, I want to go this way. Right. You know, so also having that kind of broader container allows us to make those pivots and sort of stay true to what feels like an authentic creative process. Yeah, it's more organic. I mean, I think that's why a lot of times, even when you make art, like I title my pieces after I make them because I don't know what it's called yet. I don't know exactly. Like I have a feeling of what it could be, but it's like, it's going to evolve. That's the magic that happens. And if you let it flow, then, you know, something even better will manifest. Totally. Can I ask you a question? Yeah, shoot. How do you know when a piece is done? Oh, okay. So that, you know, it's very tricky. I think usually I get a gut feeling where I'm like, if I do more, I'm going to mess this up. You know, like, Mm. ooh, I think I could overpaint this. You can totally overpaint something where you're just like, oh, no, this is, it, it was better five steps ago. So now I kind of gut check myself, like, is it there? Is it? And you kind of gut feeling, no, you're like, oh yeah. Like sometimes I'm like five more strokes, this is done. I can see once it's at that point, it's going to be there. But then there's pieces that I've finished like years before or even months before that could be sitting around my studio and I'm like, hmm, I think I need to go back into this one, you know? So yeah, <laughs> is it done? Yeah. I mean, maybe done at that moment. Right, sometimes done for now. Right. Sometimes it's even done by the deadline. Like I've had that happen before too, to be honest. But yeah, usually it's a gut feeling where I'm like, okay, I think this is where I could be okay with it. Or yes, I got it. It's kind of a gut sense, but you definitely know when you overdo it. So I, I kind of balance that one a little, but yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a balancing trick. (laughs) Yeah. I also really like this about Four Freedoms is that I feel like you guys were already set up in such a a very innovative way because one, you guys worked remote before 
the pandemic, you know, you, you have a team that's in multi cities. So I really like that you guys kind of already had that fluid model. And then you were explaining to me once that you guys like do solid programming and then you take time off to like marinate on what you want to do and fundraise. And then you go back into programming where I feel like so many organizations just go back to back to back. Cause you feel like to be able to maintain the funding and to maintain, you have to always justify that you're doing things. So could you talk us a little bit through like where that strategy came from? Because I really think it's innovative. (laughs) Well, I'm glad it looks like that from the outside because it's definitely (laughs) not how it feels. It literally feels like we're always back to back. And I think we were like that for a little bit because it always felt like, oh, is this going to be a thing next year? Or do we only want to do this for one more year? And all of us have kind of other projects and, and work that are happening simultaneous to For Freedom. So that always played a factor in kind of our thinking in the moment around, is this going to live beyond this year or the next? But I think we are thinking much more long term now and have sort of half committed to doing a, a four year campaign. So we just launched our 2020 Awakening campaign, which for us was really sort of the intro to Four Freedoms 2.0. And we'll wrap that campaign in 2024. And each year will be dedicated to one of the Four Freedoms. It's sort of our first attempt to really do this in a in a really long term way. Again, previously, everything kind of happened really organically. And I think perhaps for that reason, we did have to take a little bit of time to stop and think about what we were doing it, why we were doing it, how it was relevant to the moment and what was inspiring us or driving us in those times. And I think too, like any work, it can be very tiring, just constantly having to output ideas and bigger, bolder projects. So we always kind of hit a wall, I think, usually around (laughs) mid-December. And then, you know, it's a very slow start in January, February. And usually by the spring, we're kind of like, okay, we know what we're going to do for the year. So to answer your question, (laughs) I don't think it was done very purposefully up until now. Mm -hmm. It was sort of done out of necessity. Mm -hmm. I think part of it too, part of this process that we've created includes how do we create work that we can hand back to the community to take and run with? Right. So we're not just like creating, I mean, we are creating things and putting them out there. And we are, I guess, in one way, the curator or the author, depending on the project. But we really look at these projects as models that people can adapt and replicate. So that kind of strategic thinking goes into all of these projects that we're doing. Like, yeah, we'll do something because we're really into it. But we also are thinking about how do we communicate that collaborative process to the folks that we're working with or talking to. And even that has sparked almost sort of a new facet of our work. We do a lot of ideating and brainstorming sessions with creative friends, you know, artists or people who are maybe not even artists. They might be technologists or scientists who just want to pick our brains around how to break the rules, how to mm-hmm. how to maybe leverage culture to talk about some of these things that aren't accessible to mainstream audiences, like complicated technological stuff or, or science. So mm-hmm. 
that's been really fun. And, and that also kind of came about, like I said, naturally. Beautiful. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. Can you also walk us through, you guys had an amazing conference where you brought together creatives from all over the country. Can you walk us through a little bit about the conference? What was it about? Why did you do it? Why did you feel the need to gather at that time? And what do you feel like you got out of it? Oh, I laugh because it was such it was a, such a hectic six months. <laughs> the lead up. And like, I still look back on that and I'm like, I can't believe we pulled it off, but we did it. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I think the impetus was multifold. I think one, because our work has been primarily decentralized to a great degree, you know, even our team, we wanted an opportunity for everyone to actually congregate in person. I mean, there's a real magic in bringing people together, especially artists, and just sort of seeing what happens. So we just wanted people to meet. We wanted to meet the people we had been working with for one, two, three years. And then I think, too, going into another historic election year, 2020, we also wanted to use that moment together to kind of ideate and strategize around kind of a collective agenda or a collective plan of action that we could all kind of execute in our own unique ways, but do it under this wider umbrella to create greater moment and attention around the importance of creative voices in this moment. And I think we saw in 2020 how important culture was to the political conversation. You know, I think in many ways, for the first time, people were really recognizing the value and power of it in inspiring people to participate who might not have previously participated or who were apathetic to the system or even disenfranchised by the system, too. So I think those were the primary inspirations for doing that. And we really prioritized it being artist-driven. We didn't want to be like the sole authors of this weekend. We just wanted to create a space for people to come, share their work, and to kind of give the entire weekend just multi-dimensions. So much more than we could just offer as, as a single group. So it was all structured around what we called planning sessions at the time that were all artist led. So they were 90, they're usually 60 to 90 minute interactive workshops. And, you know, as an attendee, you could go from workshop to workshop. I mean, you couldn't attend all of them, unfortunately, but it was just, again, a beautiful way to connect, to think about your work in the context of this bigger community and to learn and exchange ideas with, with peers and colleagues. So it was super fun. Again, can't believe we pulled it off. <laughs> are you guys going to do one again? I hope so. So we are thinking about <laughs> doing another one this fall, which um, might be part virtual, just sort of given the precarious public health situation. Um, but yeah, there, there has been conversation about hosting a, a kind of state of the union again to kind of nod to political language and, and systems that we often find ourselves interrogating. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Well, I can't wait. I really hope that you do. I can't, I will totally (laughs) be supportive and in attendance. That sounds amazing. Hats off to you guys to pull that off because that is a major, major accomplishment. Um, (laughs) Thank you. I really feel like as well, one of the many specialties that you have is building strong partnerships. I feel like it really is an art form in itself. And it's something that people, I think the better you are at building strong partnerships and collaborations, the more possibilities arise. So, you know, for people that are trying to strengthen this skill set, do you have any tips that you could share about how you like to go into it when you're starting to build partnerships? Definitely. I think it's a great question. I mean, I think we're still figuring it out, but I think first and foremost, just keeping an open mind. I think oftentimes when we go into conversations with potential partners, I think that there's this this feeling that we need to come to these conversations with like clarity, like around what we want, what we don't want. And I find that coming into the initial conversations with a totally open mind really just sets a different tone and and allows us to build something that again not to continue to use the word expansive but it it, it really does allow us to do things that have never been done before and you know we have conversations with folks all the time we're like oh th- we're looking for x y and z and we're like oh well what about this and they're like yeah but that's not really what we're talking about like, well, why not? Mm-hmm. Why can't you just call it that? I mean, right. isn't this a form of this? Right. And then it gets into a conversation around, okay, what is this thing that you're talking about? And can right. it look like 30 different things? Why does it have to look like one or two things? Yep. And so that starts kind of a chain reaction of what feels like rabbit holes sometimes. We can really get stuck in, in the conversation and the ideation but it has really birthed some really, really cool collaborations that we didn't think would be possible. So I think an open mind, I think an open mind and just knowing that there are multiple definitions of things. And honestly, as artists, not to be cheesy, but whatever you decide to do, you can call it whatever you want. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. It's like one of the freedoms that we have. Like you can dress however you want. You can call things whatever you want. (laughs) Exactly. And as long as you're willing to have that conversation, right, then then it's all good. So, yeah, yeah. I love that because I definitely think that going into conversations more trying to focus on the why you're going to do something than the what, the vehicle or the how you're going to get it done. Those to me are like the tools. Those are moldable. Those can change. And it's really about trying to find what fits, but Mm -hmm. like really honing in on like, what are you trying to, like, why are you doing it? You know, what is the main goal that we want to see the change or that we want to see happen? And then building the what you're going to do and how you're going to do it. Because Mm -hmm. sometimes you go into a meeting thinking like, okay, potentially it could go in this way. But really, after you sit down and you listen, you're like, oh, no, it really needs to go completely opposite. And it's going to be even bigger and better than you thought it could be or whatever. But I like that. I think being open minded is is a huge one. Yeah. I mean, one, I'll just share like a quick, very quick anecdote as an example. My collaborator, Eric brilliant artist, professor. We did an exhibition in 
in partnership with the Courier Museum in New Hampshire. So we did a big show there, and then we did a series of programming and a big artist-driven billboard campaign. And part of the programming was, I think, hosting like a series of town halls, each based on one of the four previous freedoms, which were freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. And we wanted to do one specifically around kind of the issue of immigration. And Eric, he actually worked with the museum to host and facilitate a naturalization ceremony at the museum, which has never been done before. Yeah. And then call it art. (laughs) And he worked with students from his university to create like a citizenship toolkit that had art messages that were welcoming and heartfelt and inspiring. And so just to give you an example of just ways in which we've sort of come in and said, okay, yeah, let's do this thing that has these traditional labels, but, but let's actually do this and just call it that. And I think that it's helped us again, to just think more deeply about what we're calling art and what we're calling civic participation. So yeah, that was that was amazing and I was that's, I was super proud of that. That's mind blowing. Yeah, he he's in, that's he's mind blowing. <laughs> Go, oh my Eric. gosh. I mean it's so yeah, shout outs to Eric Gottsman. <laughs> that's so amazing and so powerful because it's sometimes art doesn't have a really clear call to action. Sometimes it does. And this is just a powerful example of like a call to action or an action that's happening to make real change in the moment in the art making itself. I mean, that's humongous. Genius. Yeah. My mind is blown. I'm totally blown by that. Okay. So another one that I want to ask you just to pick your genius brain. I really like how you said that you were such an overachiever as a young person because I'm like, well, of course, because you're such an overachiever as an adult, it makes sense. You know, I I love it. I love it. So your fundraising brain, because I feel like you're so skilled at this as well. For some folks that are just trying to step into this world of fundraising, what are some things that are tips that you kind of carry forward in your practice of fundraising? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think one thing that I has, has really helped me and granted, I, I have the benefit of having the organization's name and reputation to support the initiatives that I'm, that I'm pushing. But I think just, just kind of going in with confidence and really talking about the thing in a sincere human way. I find when I try to get very academic and business-like, it, it just doesn't resonate in the same way as when I step in and I talk about how I connect with it personally. And I think people really pick up on the sincerity in me, or not sincerity, because I think you can go in sort of with your business hat on and be sincere, but maybe authenticity or, or heart that people can really, you know, they can see it, they can feel it. Mm-hmm. In particular, like this AAPI campaign that you and I've been fundraising around. And by the way, you're an amazing fundraiser. And I picked up a lot Thank of tips you. from you. Um, Thank you. I try. But, uh, <laughs> but it's also just being the right amount of aggressive too, mm-hmm. I think. I've always been very nervous and shy around funders previously, you know, not wanting to speak out of turn and not wanting to say the wrong thing at, at the wrong time or 
just really overthinking everything. And, you know, with this campaign, we had so little time to get it up. And, you know, it was so important to me personally that I, that I just sort of went for it. And I was like, Hey, I haven't heard back from you in two days. <laughs> just want to make sure you got my email, you know, like I'm available anytime you want to talk. Um, and it, and I think too, it's, it's about really making yourself available mm-hmm. and willing to tell the story over and over and over again. And I, and I find that telling it over and over again, I learn more things about my connections to these projects that I'm pitching. So it's, yeah, I would say heart first and don't be afraid to follow up and to really push for, for the thing that you, you're looking for. And I will say the third thing too is don't be afraid to ask for what you think you need. Absolutely. You know, I think it's always scary to bring up like a number in the end, but I think in order to drive that conversation in a generative way, you know, I generally close these conversations with, well, this was so great to connect. Here's what we're looking for. Let me know what you need. Or if it's a funder that's new or who I might not have been connecting with for some time, I might start off the conversation with saying, you know, what have you all been up to? What are you funding at this time? What are you prioritizing? And that kind of helps me sort of orient the way that I'm going to pitch my idea and maybe connect it to the things that they're talking about. So yeah, absolutely. I feel like I like to always do my little spy research as much as possible that's available online beforehand. Like, what are they funding? What language are they using? <laughs> yeah. How can I model that um, in a way that's yeah. authentic and tie it into the things that I'm doing? And also make sure that they're the right fit. Because I think earlier on, I made that mistake where I was like, oh my gosh, yeah. this person has $10,000 and they want, let's say, to build a a vegetable garden. And I'm like, that's amazing. I could build a vegetable garden, even though I don't want to build a vegetable garden. All of a sudden, I'm like trying to pitch something that I don't really want to do, because that's where the money is. And I learned early on that like, no, you got to find the right fit. Somebody that's That's already into it. Yeah, something that's gonna allow you to do your thing. I mean, there's always going to be constraints. You know, you might have to tailor your pitch to specific ramp. But yeah, to your point, I mean, yeah, I think that there's a balance that we often have to find around obviously needing the resources and the funding, but staying true to the thing that we want to create and the thing that we set out to create. So, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So you kind of touched a little bit about it, but maybe if you could share a little bit more about the AAPI Solidarity Billboard Campaign we're currently working on is taking up a lot of our time and we're so invested in, you know, could you share a little bit about the project that has been unfolding over the last couple months? Definitely. So when was this at this? I don't even remember at this point. It might've been at the beginning of April, maybe late March. Um, My friend, Aaron, my friend, Aaron Yoshi called me. Um, (laughs) And you and I checked in with each other. There was, I think at the moment, quite a bit of news around violence that was occurring within and to our communities as a result of the pandemic, but also as a result of racist rhetoric being perpetuated by the media, by the government, but also stemming from a legacy of, I think, just cyclical violence, cyclical racial violence in this country in general. So 
I think you and I were exchanging a lot of ideas around that and feelings about it. And I think that there was a desire to, I think, respond as a creative community. We were seeing a lot of individual artists responding, individual cultural leaders responding. But what would it look like if a bunch of us got together, said what we needed to say, you know, as our own individual messages, but again, under this this larger umbrella. And Four Freedoms at that at this stage had produced and curated a, a number of national billboard campaigns at this point. So I don't want to say it's plug and play for us, but we had relationships with media partners, with billboard companies. We have highly experienced and trained producers who know how to navigate this world. And so we were sort of at the ready to do something. And at the time, we were going through a bit of a, a programmatic lull because we're actually restructuring our organization, side note, in addition <laughs> to kind of building this larger campaign. The timing of it just was sort of serendipitous. And it might have even been you who first suggested like a billboard idea or a billboard campaign. And I was like, let's do it. So I quickly put some numbers together. And I was like, I think we can do this for this amount of money. And I think I can get this amount of money within the next week. Let's move. And we just started calling artists that we love and admire and respect and asking them, hey, do you want to create this conversation with us? And I think we wanted to create a conversation that encompassed a lot of different perspectives, a lot of identities, a lot of histories, a lot of mediums. Just because we all might identify as AAPI doesn't necessarily mean that we're all going to be aligned, that we're all going to need the same things at the same time, and we all respond differently. And so I think it was important for us to show that dimensionality within this really ginormous moniker that is AAPI, which I think you mentioned there's like 49 countries. 48 countries. 48 countries. Yeah, and we're 59% of the world population. It's so funny because people are always like, oh, you know, Asians were the minority group. And it's like, actually... We're like the majority on the planet, you know, so it like changes the perspective a lot. I think that people, just to put that into the context of how many of us there are and how diverse we are. One thing that I didn't initially think, you know, we had this conversation, it kicks off in full steam because you are the amazing producer that you are. And we're like, let's make this happen. It was like full steam. I remember when you called me and said, I think we could get these billboards up in like two weeks. You know, I was shocked. I was floored. I'm like, really? Oh, it's go time. Let's make this happen. You know? <laughs> and I didn't expect such a big coalition that then we would be pulled, you know, start to navigate through just building with other thought leaders and academics in the AAPI field that are also doing like-minded work and to kind of come together in this full force like power moves that were happening within our community, I think was just amazing and so, so inspiring to be a part of. And also just, I love the the ongoing conversations and the new relationships that are being built, because I feel like it goes so much more than just this moment. And it can go so much more beyond just this month, you know, AAPI month, because I really feel that by forging these sorts of networks, like this is what's going to change into the future. This is what's going to help move us forward into the future. So I'm super grateful for all your efforts and building with you on this because it's oh, mind-blowing. Like how much has been accomplished? When I sit back and think about it, it just blows my 
freaking mind. <laughs> yeah, it's been it's been pretty wild, pretty fun. But yeah, we started out with 14 billboards and now we have a total of oh god, 30 something. I'm blanking there, on the number. Yeah, I want to say there's almost 40. And then if you mm-hmm. count Sacramento cuz we had three artists with 13 billboards, it's just like in addition to those other numbers, it's insane, you know, on the freeways, on major stadiums, to be on the front of the King Stadium in Sacramento, what an honor it is to have our work, our message out on the forefronts of it. I think that that was just a really beautiful partnership and collaboration. So, and what's continuing to develop. Yeah, no, thank you. Yeah, no, I mean, I think the the billboard approach just a such a fun approach to public art. You see billboards and you expect to see someone trying to sell you something or someone trying to advertise something. But to look at a billboard and and see a work of art on that canvas is such a unique experience and I think it just it brings art to audiences that might not go to museums or galleries or kind of more conventional art viewing spaces. And creates a much more public conversation around the role of art and how it shapes our, our social, geographic, political landscapes. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I feel like a lot of times our community members and don't go into formal institutions. Some people do, but some people also don't. So that's why I love the power of public art. It's just because it's actually put into our communities. You know, it's accessible. It's free to access So it allows for such a larger audience to engage with. So I really love what you guys have done. You guys are like, like you said, like you, you had it plug and play, but it's because you've done so many of them that it was just amazing to work with your team. Everybody shout outs to June because I love June. June (laughs) June is amazing, but shout outs to the four freedoms team because it would have never happened without you guys. And I just feel like it was such a amazing experience to be able to kind of go on this journey with you and your team. So thank you so much for that. Cause no, thank you, Yoshi. And I want to thank Orange Barrel Media too, because they donated almost all of our billboards to us besides the Sacramento King Stadium. So that's huge. And they've been just super supportive of our work from the outset. And also shout out to Taylor. Amazing. Yes. Shout outs to Taylor. Amazing billboard queen. Oh my goodness. I mean, and and the folks that have put out the decks, when I saw this press deck, it's insane. I mean, I feel intimidated to dip my toe into it. I'm a little late on it. The week has been crazy, but I, I am just so amazed by it to see all the work, all the efforts that's put into it. And I love that it's built in coalition with shout outs to Jeff Chang and Renee Pena, because it's really amazing to see the the work that they've done with the videos that are coming out as well. So please follow them online as well to find the amazing work that they're pushing out in short videos. But Michelle, I totally want to respect your time because we are at our hour. And I just would love it if you could share with our audience where they can stay up on Four Freedoms. Where can they find you online, your social hashtags, so they can stay up on all the amazing work that you guys do? Yes. You can check us out at fourfreedoms.org. Sadly, we only have our 2020 work up right now, but we're in the process of going through a whole brand refresh and all of our past work and current work will be on the site soon. 
You can also check us out on Instagram at Four Freedoms. As part of AAPI Heritage Month, we are doing a whole conversation series, including artists and filmmakers and different cultural leaders associated with the movement. So check us out there. We have a YouTube channel. I don't know how many views that gets, but we often end up posting a lot of our live conversations to our YouTube. So you can always check them out after the fact. That's primarily where you can find us or in person, hopefully soon. Yeah, hopefully soon. Well, thank you, Michelle, <laughs> yeah. so much for being a part of our podcast and sharing with our Not Real Art community. We really appreciate you. And yeah, we're so thankful to have you here. Oh, thank you. It was so fun. Yay. See you soon. See you soon. Thanks so much. Thanks. Hey there. Thanks for tuning in. Please be sure to like this episode, write a review, and share with your friends on social. And if you haven't already done so, please press the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram at NotRealArtWorld.